Well, good morning. It is so good to see everyone here today. It was kind of nice to wake up and I had to put on a long sleeve shirt. Love it. I'm, I'm loving the weather and it rained, but it was just such a nice, we have such, we have the best kind of rain here in, in uh, Orange County. It's just amazing. Everything about Orange County is awesome. Um, you know, as we just kind of think about uh, just our whole political system, you know, one of the things that I am just so thankful for, it's like amongst all the, the turbulence, the, the challenges, um, just for us to remember that ultimately God is on the throne. He raises up leaders and he moves leaders out. And I think sometimes it's not that as Christians we don't care about politics. We want the best for our nation and we're, we're passionate about that. But what it comes down to is that um, the political things are, are ultimately insignificant. What matters is people standing before the Lord. And so one of the things we remember is prayer is powerful and we pray for our country. We pray for our country's leaders. But we remember that more important than politics is that we love one another and ultimately that we're pursuing the gospel. Um, trying to fix a political system and just whatever, wherever people end up on that, it's like rearranging uh, chairs on the Titanic. The, the ship is sinking. And, uh, and so to, to try to repaint things like that, it's just insignificant. We are about things of eternal value. And this morning, we're going to be talking about marriage and divorce. And this, you know, so much hinges on, um, on, our, on the family, what God has designed. And so uh, as we think about that this morning, um, it just is going to be so important and so beneficial for us to just remember a few things. Think about Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And this is really a passage that summarizes the Christian life. When we call people to come to Christ and when a person comes to Christ and they label themselves as a Christian, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 is an expression of what that calling is. And this is it. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. There are so many people that as they approach life, they think life is about me, life is about what I want, I determine what's right and wrong for myself. But what the Bible says is no, when you come to Christ, you are a living sacrifice. Your purpose is to please God. Your purpose is to be holy. Your purpose is to worship God. And I think that's a fundamental understanding. And then he goes on in verse 2, and he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We, we renew our minds as Christians. We learn what does God say about life, and we learn to think the way God tells us to think. We renew our minds that by testing you may be you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. What God says is always best. Uh, we reminded ourselves last week that when uh, Satan was lying to Eve and when he was saying to her, no, trust me, if you will eat from the fruit of this tree, you will be better off. You'll be like God knowing good and evil. One of the things we remember 
is that the lies that Satan tells are never for our best interests. And as Eve was sitting there and listening to the snake and just go, man, this, this fruit, it looks really good. It looks really amazing. It looks really awesome. And if I disobey God and do what Satan's suggesting, it's going to make my life so much better. And uh, we know the story, right? <laughs> she ate from the tree and did things get better? <laughs> no, they didn't. Um, everything went wrong. And we're just reminded, that's repeated to us in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, where it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, when you think about how people approach families and how people approach marriage, there are so many times that doing what God says we should not do seems like the best option. In fact, sometimes obeying God can feel impossible. But that's one of the things we know from reading Scripture is that what God tells us is always what is best for us. Now, as we talk about issues, it's really important for us to remember that the church is not about moralism. It's about our relationship with Christ. And what we believe is important because that flows. Um, what we believe actually flows into our life. But our goal is never to, to win people to a view of a particular topic. Our goal is to introduce people to Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to what you believe about marriage and divorce or any of the other issues in life, it's never ultimately about that issue. It's always about does this person know Christ? And what it comes down to is when you know Christ, then you obey everything Jesus says. And you just say, God, you know better than me. So if I'm a Christian and if I'm a believer, I'm going to accept and believe and trust what you tell me. Um, but it's never about trying to get a person to have the same view you have because you could fix everybody's views about everything, but if they don't know Christ, that is also like rearranging chairs on the Titanic. Um, so ultimately, we are, we're about things that are far more important than the issues of life, though they do include the issues of life. And so when it comes to the, the whole issue, and in our passage, um, it addresses all kinds of things, divorce, sexual impurity, abortion, gender identity, all of those things. And what's really important for us to recognize is that the church really needs to be there for people who are struggling in these various areas. Uh, the, the church needs to be a place that's safe to be honest with your struggles and what's going on in your life. But the church will never be able to truly love people until it knows and is committed to what God says. And so that's what we're going to be considering this morning. So quick review last week, I got three quarters of the way through point one. So now we're going to see how far we can get in the rest of this. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1 through 12. And the context, uh, Matthew 18, just talks about how sin is a big deal. It's destructive. We need to be really careful that we don't encourage other people to sin and that we're not sinning. And that ultimately God is the rescuer. And it's a reminder that the church is part of God's rescuing mission. And we have a personal responsibility in rescuing people. And we, and we have a corporate responsibility in rescuing people. <laughs> One of the things I love about the church, I want to be plugged in. I want everybody in my family to be plugged in. Because one day when we're having problems, we want the church to come and rescue us. And, and some of the most important things we do are how we prepare for when we're going to struggle. 
And so the setting, Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, and we'll just read the passage and then we'll pick up where we left off. But Matthew 19, 1, now when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there, which was a testimony that Jesus was who he said he was, that he's true, it's a truth, and also an expression of God's love. And look at verse 3. And the Pharisees came up testing him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, in their culture, it was just like our culture. People could get divorced for any reason. And there was a debate. Some people said no, and some people said, oh, no, you can get divorced for any reason. So this was cult culturally, um, you know, controversial. And then he answered, and he just points him to Scripture. He doesn't say, oh, man, nobody could know what God meant. I don't know. What's your opinion? He says, have you not read what God said? He expected them to read and understand. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And so we're going to jump in here. We, we kind of got to that, that, that commitments are significant, that are made. And this commitment of marriage, God defines marriage. And even though we make choices in marriage, what is significant about marriage is that marriage is something that God does. When you choose to get married, that's a commitment not just to a person that you're marrying. That is a commitment to God. And it says, what God is therefore joined together, let man not separate. Now, what's interesting is when it says what God has jo therefore joined together, it places the focus on marriage. It doesn't say who God joined together. So this is a phrase that definitely includes the who, but it's not primarily about the who. It's about marriage. It's about what that represents. And so, and that's actually what we're going to look at here. Marriage is something that we do personally and willingly, but when we do it, it is God who does the joining. And we talked about um, commitments and even, even God's grace and mercy in the midst of that. We thought about David and Bathsheba, this terrible sin, this adultery that was committed, and how in a sense, all throughout Scripture, um, uh, Bathsheba is always referred to as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Um, every time God refers to, to Bathsheba, that's how she's re referred to, that first marriage that should never have been violated. And yet God's grace and mercy, because in the genealogy, Bathsheba was Jesus' great-great-great-great-grandmother, and God blessed this sinful situation after there was repentance. God blessed that, and she ends up in Jesus' genealogy. So let's talk about marriage. What is the significance of marriage? Why is it, and, and our first point is this, that divorce is not God's intention for marriage. And one of the things that's significant is that marriage is intended to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is not ultimately about us. Marriage is actually about God. And so let's look at a few verses from Ephesians 
Um, it says here, Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. It's interesting that one of the main passages on marriage in the Bible is a connection and a description of the relationship between Jesus and the church. And that's actually the comparison. When you think about the church and you think about Jesus, it actually helps you think about what your marriage should be like. And that's the analogy that that is used to help people know how to be married. Here's the, here's, it goes on in verse 25, and it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, in, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So when you think about the relationship, um, wives submit to their husbands the way Christ, the way the church submits to Christ, and husbands love their wives the way Jesus loves the church. And a husband's job is what? To sanctify, to help his wife grow in spiritual maturity. Like, one of the most significant things that happens in marriage is you are pursuing people's spiritual growth and spiritual best interests. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of times marriages end up in divorce is because men are not functioning as the leaders that God intends them to be. The, the spiritually driving force in a marriage is supposed to be a man leading his wife. And wives following and encouraging their husbands to grow spiritually one of the things that we see here, it goes on, and it says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And, uh, and then it goes on in verse 33, and it says, um, it, the chapter, this section ends in verse 33. It says, however, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. So in this passage, um, we're not going to go through all the details on marriage, but I just want to point out that nowhere in this passage does it say, husbands, love your wives if they submit to you, if they follow, if they respect you. The, 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 the onus, the responsibility is that you need to love your wife as Christ loved the church. There's nothing conditional about that um, unless she's hard to live with, unless she's a difficult person. Um, there's just this thing, you love your wife the way Christ loved the church. And for wives, it doesn't say, wives, follow your husbands if they're great leaders. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, respect your husbands if they are worthy of respect. You are told to, to, to follow your husband's leadership and to respect your husband. That is something that God commands you to do. And when you look at each of these things, um, the, the reason we do what we're told to do in marriage is because God tells us to. We never function rightly because the other person deserves it. We function rightly because ultimately marriage is something God does. And so I, I'm to respond to Michelle the way God tells me to, not because she deserves it, but because God demands it. And she is to respond to me the way God tells her to respond to me, not because I deserve it, but because God demands it. 
And the amazing thing is that when we set aside our, our preferences, when, when we set aside what we perceive as our best interests, and we just say, no, what God tells me to do, I will do, that results in a good marriage. That results in the blessings that God intends. And when people take a step back and say, no, that's really hard, that's really difficult. If I do that, that's torture. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand how horrible this person is that I live with. This cannot be done. Um, when, when people approach marriage in that way, it ends in disaster. You know, returning good for evil. Uh, we do that. When we perceive somebody as our enemy, we return good for evil. Hu marriages where spouses return good for evil toward each other, that results in a happy, blessed marriage. Marriages where people give each other what they deserve, well, that leads to divorce. And so when we think about God's purpose in marriage and what God calls us to, and we realize that marriage is not about me and my perceived path to happiness. Marriage is about Christians who say, God, I am a living sacrifice. I die to myself. A person dies to themselves when they come to Christ, and that is reflected in marriage. This is not about what is best for me. This is what is, what is pleasing to God. And when we approach marriage that way, um, I've never seen, I have never seen a marriage end in divorce where you have two married people who treat each other that way, who honor and obey what God says. So here's the second thing. There is, God does permit divorce. And so let's talk about that. It goes on in verse 7. A divorce is permissible in the case of adultery. And we're going to add to that um, something that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, which is abandonment. We'll get there. But let's just look at this. So what, 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 in what way is divorce provided for? So they, they come back to Jesus. They respond to him with this question. Then they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And so when you think about that, you go through all the Bible and you go, okay, where did, where did Moses command divorce? And I'll show you a verse that, that, that the Pharisees here are probably referring to. But I just want to tell you, the Bible never commands anybody to get divorced. So that's not there. It says, and so they ask him that, and then he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So here's the verse, and it's interesting. Um, this is the verse that is referred to. It's Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, and I'm going to show you two translations of it. So the first one's the ESV, and it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, he then, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. So one of the things that you notice here, that's just a statement of fact. And the, and the debate about um, the wife is not pleasing and he finds some indecency, that's, that was really the state of the, the debate about divorce. What does that mean? He discovers that she's been sexually immoral. Um, is it adultery or is it just for anything? And that's what the Pharisees debated. 
But you'll notice how it just says, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. If you look at the way the King James translates this, it says, when a man takes, has taken a wife and marries her, and it comes to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorce. Do you see that? Let him. That's a command. And so it's the way that, that they viewed and translated this passage. Of course, they weren't translating it. They were just reading it. But they, they took this to be a command while it's not a command. And so, um, so, the, so, that, so one of the things that you would see in this, this whole issue of divorce, do you remember when Joseph and Mary were betrothed and Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant? And he's like, okay, we have not been sexually active and my fiance is pregnant. What, what did the Bible say Joseph was going to do? Being a righteous man, he was going to divorce her. He was going to put her aside. And so that's what this is referring to in the sense of finding some indecency. And, and there's, 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 a, there's much more that could be said there. But the, the point that Jesus makes is that marriage was intended to be permanent. And the only thing that breaks that marriage covenant is adultery. Not incompatibility. Not we fight all the time. Not we can't get along. Uh, the Bible has all kinds of things to say about how that is addressed. But when a person has made a commitment and they're sexually unfaithful, that is something that God allows for divorce. Now, just in the sense of the significance of divorce, I want to read this passage in, in uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. Now, um, just for a little bit of context, the, um, uh, Israel was being judged during this period, and so the, the, the message of Malachi is, I don't, is God is saying to Israel, I don't accept your offerings. Um, it's, your crops are not being rained on. You guys are having fa famine. You're having all kinds of financial difficulty and challenges, and you're asking why. Why do I refuse to accept your offerings? Why am I not blessing you as a nation? Well, let me tell you why. And the first thing he says is because you are robbing me in your tithes and offerings. You're supposed to be giving generously to me, and you're not doing that. You think that when you have financial trouble, you can just keep all your money to yourself, and that's going to help you? Absolutely not. You will be financially devastated because you're stealing from me. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing, and then this is this passage. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards or accepts the offering um, uh, with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And so then God is going to now talk about um, because they are being unfaithful in their marriages, they're divorcing, uh, that's, that's what's bringing this on them. And then it says in verse 15, did he not make them one? This is something God has done. When they got married, God made them one. With a portion of the spirit in their union, and was this not what God was seeking? Godly offspring as part of the purpose of marriage is that we raise the next generation. Did you know that the, the significant place of discipleship is in the home? 
the, the place that people disciple and train and, and help people come to know the Lord and honor the Lord and walk with the Lord, that is something that happens in the home. That is the purpose of a mom and a dad to love the Lord and to have kids and then to teach their kids to walk with the Lord. And in the same way, uh, we've kind of exported education um, to the, the school system, and it's like you got moms and dads, and it's like, oh, yeah, no, we don't educate our kids. Let the school system do that. What is so sad is we have taken that mentality, and you have moms and dads that they have kids, and they're raising their kids, and they think, oh, yeah, let the church disciple and train my kids. Hire a youth pastor to train my kids. Let the Sunday school teachers educate my kids. Now, I am a huge believer in youth ministry and Sunday school. I think that is so significant. Those are some of the most important things that the church does. But the responsibility of discipling and training and raising kids is not someone else somewhere else. It is a mom and a dad. And one of the great failures in our culture is you have two people that fight with each other so much that don't get along, that are focused on financial things or this thing or that thing, that the spiritual shepherding of their kids is not happening. And when you have marriages that are falling apart, those marriages don't produce godly offspring. And part of the reason for that is you have kids growing up in a home watching a mom and dad who do not prioritize what God says is a priority. And if mom and dad can't love each other, if dad can't love mom, if dad can't lead mom, if dad can't be a spiritual leader in the home, if following God is not important to dad, why would following God be important to me? You can say whatever you want, but when your kids see these things lived out in your life, that is so significantly influential. And if mom... Um, disregards everything that God says about following dad, and, and if mom disregards everything that God says about respecting dad, if mom doesn't care what God says, why would I care what God says? Moms and dads start by setting an example of saying, I'm a Christian. What I feel like and what I want is so much less important than what God tells me to do because I am a living sacrifice. And when kids grow up and they see that and all the things that moms and dads have learned about that, they are verbally and systematically training and they are teaching their kids and they're showing the priority of God in their family, that produces godly offspring. And that's one of the huge problems in our culture and it goes on in the middle of verse 15 of Malachi, and it says, So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, he covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Um, and then he's going to go on. He's going to talk about some of their words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. God is just, I am so tired of what you say. You look at people who clearly disregard and disobey what I have said, and you label that good. 
you know, isn't that our culture? You have people who just live a life of total rebellion against God. God, I don't care what you say. I'm not going to do it. And yet we label them as good. Uh, we label, oh, yeah, no, they're, they're Christians. We label people as Christians. We label people as good who disregard everything God says. And here's what we know. Christians do not fundamentally disregard what God says. That doesn't mean we don't sin. We have plenty of examples in Scripture. We have the Apostle Paul talking about how he struggles, to, and sometimes he does the things that he doesn't want to do. But Christians, the Bible says, if you love me, Jesus says, you will obey me. And, and as a church and as Christians and as, as in a Christian marriage, we need to label things as God labels them. Sin, disobedience, and obedience. God determines that. We don't. Um, marriages, all marriages can be difficult. Um, a couple of my favorite marriage books, and I've shared this with you guys before. One of my favorite ones, it says, uh, the title is, What Did You Expect? You know, you get these people, these, these two sinful people, they're Christians, they get married, and they're just shocked. Oh, my goodness, we thought it would just be a honeymoon forever. And uh, I remember when Michelle and I got married, um, when I would walk up the steps, probably, uh, you know, two, three months into our marriage, we'd walk, I'd walk up the stairs of the church, and all the men were coming over to me. They were going, oh, hey, I've been married a couple months. How you doing? Uh, hey, listen, don't give up. Just know that uh, marriage is hard. This is the most difficult time in your life. And uh, I remember going home to Michelle and just, you know, we actually had not had a conflict even one. And I'm like, man, these poor people, they just, man, their marriages are so bad. You know, Michelle and I were, we were married for a year and a half before we had our first fight. And um, it took us a year and a half to actually have a disagreement that we both actually cared about. Usually it was like, do you want to go to McDonald's or, or Burger King? I don't care. Where do you want to go? You know, we disagreed about stuff that were unimportant. But about a year and a half in, <laughs> we had a disagreement about something that we were so passionate about. And we just could not see it the same way. And it was such a significant conflict. And I just remember thinking, oh, man, okay, now I know what everybody's talking about. And that was a really challenging time in our, in our marriage. We didn't fight for a year and a half, but we made up for it in the coming years. You know, you get two sinful people. Another one of my favorite marriage books, it's, the title is uh, When Sinners Say I Do. Two sinful people get married. Do we expect that it's just going to be peace, that it's not going to be difficult, that it's not going to be really hard? Um, of course not. Marriage is challenging. I've told you guys before, there's three rings in marriage. There's the engagement ring, there's, there's the wedding ring, and then there's suffering. And, um, but one of, the, one of the great things about marriage, this is what I love about marriage, is that when you're struggling in your marriage, the way out of the struggle is obedience. The way out is to say, okay, God, what are the things that you tell me? You, know, you think about what God calls us to be humble. He calls us to love each other. He calls us to be forgiving. You remember Craig's message on forgiveness? Um, he calls us to be forgiving. He calls us to put other people's needs above our own. And so in marriage, when you don't do that thing, those things, when you have two people that disregard what God says about humility and love and servant-heartedness and diligence and care for another person, that makes people miserable. 
And so it's kind of like marriage is like God's sandpaper to smooth people off, to shape them into the place that he wants them. Marriage is not just for your happiness. Marriage results in holiness. And um, so um, a lot of times people struggle in marriage. And by the way, that is why sexual purity is so significant. When, when people are in a dating relationship and they say, oh, man, we, we love each other so much we can't stay apart, that is not true. It's when you love yourself so much you don't stay apart. Um, sexual unfaithfulness is saying, actually, I don't care about your spiritual well-being. I only care about my momentary happiness. I am willing to sin against you. I am willing to bring God's judgment into your life. Uh, because when you sin, that brings God's judgment into your life. When you sin sexually, something that significant, and you have all these people who ha they have this mentality of, we're getting married anyway, so what difference does it make? Sex is okay in two months. That was the weirdest thing when Michelle and I got married. Yesterday, this would have been a sin, and today it's actually the right thing to do. You know, yesterday it was a sin to have sex. Today it would be sinful not to. And, but it's just amazing how that changes. But you have so many people that think so incorrectly about that. What they don't realize is as I sin against you and as I train you to sin against me, now we're going to get married. And in marriage, what have we trained people to do? We've trained each other to disregard what God says. So the people who can't stay apart before they're married can't get together after they're married. The people who love each other so much that they're sexually immoral before they get married are talking to each other with anger and wrath, and, and there's just all this difficulty. Why? Because they've trained themselves to sin against each other. And, and in the midst of that, there's, there's forgiveness. Um, God blesses us. We can repent. But it is a long road back from disobedience. The people that I know, that I've done premarital counseling with and that I've known what's going on in their life and the people who have good marriages in those early years almost always are the same people who didn't struggle um, with purity before they got married. And all the couples struggling with purity beforehand had very difficult first five years of marriage. And it's simple. Obeying God leads to blessing disregarding God leads to pain and suffering. And divorce, by the way, is allowed, never commanded, but it is allowed because of the sinfulness and the hard-heartedness of mankind. Verse 9 says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. You know, the... Um, Marriage, sex is not marriage. And we talked about that last week. People say, oh, yeah, no, um, we're married in God's eyes because we had sex already. No, that's fornication. That's not marriage. And, and, and adultery is a sin. It's not like polygamy. You know, if sex meant marriage, then, then sex would, there wouldn't, wouldn't be a sin if you just did it. Okay, well, now you're married, and if you had sex with multiple people, now you'd be polygamous. So that's not true. Here's the issue is that in marriage, God joins two people together. And sex is something that, that affirms that and that is a part of that and that goes along with 
marriage. And this is actually described when Paul's going to talk about sexual sin and why it is so significant. Here's what's interesting. Why it is so significant for a Christian not to have sex outside of marriage. And, and, and the emphasis in this passage is, hey, don't violate your relationship with your spouse. The emphasis in this passage is, do not violate your relationship with God. Look, look at what it says here. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? God owns you. Your body belongs to Jesus if you're a Christian. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them a member, members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's about marriage. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And here's another key in all of that is verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so this is a significant thing. Um, violating the marriage relationship in a sense, when a person um, has an affair, commits, commits adultery, that is breaking the marriage and divorce recognizes that. Now, it is not saying, Jesus is not saying that if, that if your spouse is unfaithful, you have to get divorced. But that is an, an option that God allows. And one of the things that is so difficult is you have people that are going through very difficult times. And no matter what's going on, when marriages are coming, coming apart, when marriages are struggling, the church needs to come alongside, needs to surround people, needs to encourage, needs to help people, needs to try to help marriages not go off the cliff. And what's so sad is that so often in the church, we, quote, mind our own business. And we try to, quote, not be judgmental. And instead of people coming alongside and surrounding um, a man who's struggling in his marriage or a woman who's struggling in his marriage, instead of people coming alongside who have been married, who understand how intense and how difficult and how challenging these things can be to come alongside and to say, man, I love you. And I know that this is so frustrating and so hard and I'm going to pray for you. But this is what God says you're supposed to do. Oh, but you don't understand. My wife, she's so disrespectful. She never follows me. She just makes my life miserable. Yeah, that's really hard. But the Bible says you need to live with her in an understanding way. And that that's actually between you and God. And if you don't live with your wife in a really understanding way, God won't even hear you when you pray. So what kind of a leader and what kind of an example are you being? And it doesn't matter how you feel. You need to obey what God says. And when some woman goes to a Bible study and just says, oh, man, my, my husband, he's a tyrant. He's so lazy. He won't do anything. I have to do all the work. He doesn't work. And just goes on and on about what a terrible husband she has. And for those people who are struggling, man, they've been married, they're struggling, they know what it's like to be with somebody that's really hard and unkind and harsh, and to say, man, I know that's really hard and that's difficult, and we're going to pray for you and we're going to encourage you, but did you know that the Bible says that when your husbands are disobedient to the word, 
that you should respond to them with gentleness and kindness and that you should win them over actually without any words, just by chaste and pure and respectful behavior. That's what God calls you to be. And the whole church is supposed to come alongside and encourage and support. But what ends up happening is there's a lot of people who they disregard God in their own life all the time. And when God tells them to do something that's difficult, ah, they just blow it off. Now I ain't doing that. And then they go sit around in a Bible study with people and they, they see somebody that's really struggling. And they go, man, your husband's a jerk. You know what? You ought to divorce that guy. That's what I'd do. And, and you get a church and a group of people that just encourage one another to disregard God. Or they just ignore it. And that is not what God calls us to be. That is not what the church is called to be. And uh, you want to get a group of people to talk about it. Some, sometimes people say, oh, man, you can't talk about divorce. There's divorced people that might feel uncomfortable. Um, you know what? I think all the divorced people that I know, that I'm close to, um, they're just like, yes, tell other people this. Even people who have been divorced for unbiblical reasons say, I wish I could go back and do it differently. Tell people. That's one of the things I think about King David. You know, he's, he's giving his testimony. How would you like your lowest moment to be recorded in inspired scripture so that not just in your generation people know, but forever people will know? Man, what a tale. I was like, in some ways, aren't we blessed that they finished the Bible already? I wonder how, what things from our life would make it in there. But you know what? Um, that's one of the things I love. God's honest. And, and when we see those things working out in other people's lives, it becomes an encouragement and a blessing that we would honor and obey God. I don't know where you, you are specifically in all these details, but I would just encourage you, there is nothing better than obeying God. And when we disobey God and it brings grief into our life, the solution that, to that is not let me disobey God more. I disregarded what God said. Now I'm suffering. Um, let me disobey God again. No, it is at that moment to obey. And as a church, we should love and we should encourage. And if you disregarded God in your life and your suffering, um, join the club. <laughs> we all have that story. That's what the church is. It's a place where God loves and forgives and rebuilds and where we've broken our lives and God puts it back together. That's what salvation is. Now, there are no second-class citizens in Christianity. So my encouragement to us is if our disobedience was in the past, let's obey today. If our difficulty and struggle is in the present, the way out is to obey God. And next week, we'll get to point three. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Lord, thank you. This is, this is such an important issue. And Lord, um, I just ask that you would help us to be people that in every small way we obey you. And Lord, that that would build toward the big ways and that we would obey you in that. And Lord, we can understand the difficulty and the frustration and the struggle and the pain that various people are going through. And Lord, I just ask that you would help us to never be people that encourage disobedience and encourage sin but that we would love people regardless of their struggle, but that we would encourage them, 
to love you, to obey you, to have a relationship with you, to have the Holy Spirit living in their life to strengthen them and to enable them to obey. So, Lord, we just ask for these things in your name. Amen.